Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. With almost 10,000 Ukrainian refugees having already arrived in Ireland and the same again expected over the coming weeks, have we prepared for the long term? And has our response so far been hypocritical? The Irish Farmers Association warns of a food security crisis if we fail to pay our producers the right price. And as the world begins to turn its back on Russian fo fossil fuels, are we in a position to produce what we need ourselves? Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. tonight, a defiant Ukraine today refused to surrender the southern port city of Mariupol as EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell accused Russia of committing a massive war crime with its attack on the city. Russia is really doing a lot of war crimes. That's the word. You have to say that. What's happening in Mariupol is a massive war crime, destroying everything, bombarding and killing everybody in an indiscriminated manner. Well, for more on this, I'm joined now by our Brussels correspondent, Rosie Burchard, and we heard there from the EU foreign chief um, on this matter and no shortage of condemnation about what's happening in the besieged city of Mariupol, Rosie. Absolutely. Uh, foreign policy chief Josep Borrell was not the only person present at those meetings to evoke the language of war crimes. That was also language used by Germany's foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock. But Claire, there's one thing to make accusations of war crimes and the other is whether there can be any consequences. Now, we know the International Criminal Court in The Hague has opened an investigation into allegations of war crimes in Ukraine. But just last week, the International Court of Justice, that's the UN's top court, essentially ordered Russia to halt its operation in Ukraine. That was the language the court used. And Moscow has simply dismissed that ruling. That ruling was seen as somewhat toothless, that order from the court, because it has no way to really enforce that. So while we have condemnation and allegations and fierce accusations of war crimes, we don't yet see any way that those could really come into consequences for Russia and for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Rosie, also in Brussels today, talk of this new EU defence strategy and a rapid reaction force. What's it all about? I don't know uh, if we've lost Rosie there. We may come back to her shortly if we can um, and get some reaction to that. Uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, saying Ireland could be a part of it if we choose to do so. We'll talk a little bit more on that. Um, now we're going to move to... Uh, to talk to uh, Kira Doherty, who was speaking with us, um, uh, speaking with um, earlier on today. Um, sorry, we will be going back 
of course, to that. But we're talking to Lucky Kambule, um, who's with the Movement for Asylum Seekers, uh, co-founder of that movement indeed. Kira Doherty went to her home and spoke to him about the issue of refugees in this country and how they're dealt with and how he thinks Ireland could do a lot better. Take a look. I am here in Arklow, in County Wicklow, in the home of Lucky Kambuli, a migrant rights activist and somebody who probably knows more than most how some of those people who have uh, fled Ukraine in recent weeks are feeling because, Lucky, you spent four years here in our direct provision system. Um, I'm wondering what you make of the government's response to those who have fled Ukraine and have sought refuge here in Ireland. Uh, thank you for being here, firstly. Uh, my response is that I welcome, or we welcome, the response of the government uh, in relation to the wars that happened in Ukraine. And we are in solidarity with the people of Ukraine as a whole. And we welcome them here in Ireland. Uh, the response uh, by the government leaves some sort of a sour taste with us uh, who are people who have been seeking asylum here that what we see the the, the way that they have they're speeding everything with the other or, or, uh, uh, refugees is something that we have never seen whatsoever for years for people who are already in direct provision uh, with with children uh, not in, having, having an ability to even go to school. Uh, I received a lot of, of calls from the people in direct provision when there was a child that went to school after five days of being in Ireland. And people were saying, what about me? I've been here for three months and my child cannot go to school. I don't even have a card, PPS card or an, a TRC card. So that is uh, what... Uh, makes people really be sad with regard to the response to the government. That it's like they're differentiating the people that come from Ukraine and the rest of the people that come from different parts of the world, which some parts have, are, are like in in, uh, in uh, Palestine, for instance, in Yemen, uh, there are wars in the Syria, but we have never seen this response so quickly. So it's not that you have a difficulty with the response the government has provided to the Ukrainian people. It's just that you feel it's created this two-tier system in Ireland. Yes, exactly. Just want to clarify that we don't have a problem with the response. We just want equal treatment of the people that seek protection so that they must feel that they are welcome. At the moment, the people that are stuck in, 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 in emergency hotels feel like deserted by the government. When they go to the International Protection Office to apply, they are turned away. They say they are told, go and wait for us to come back to you. So that is a problem that we want the government to, because they are showing that they can do it so quickly. Why, wouldn't, why couldn't they do it? Same thing for the people that seek protection. Do you have fears for this government's ability to cope with the number of Ukrainians who might end up looking for refuge in Ireland? I have fears with regard to that, based on the fact that they could not cope with the people that are stuck in direct provision, as we speak. And uh, with the numbers that are coming, uh, 
I don't see them coping. And I, I foresee the fact that at the end of the day, the people that came from Ukraine will end up in direct provision centers. Mark my words, that will happen. That will happen because they, 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 cannot, they cannot cope. In, in the, in, I know they've got plans in a short, in a short spell of time, but those plans are not sustainable. But do you accept, uh, Lucky, that we are Irish, but we are Europeans, and this is a war in another European country? 10 million people displaced in three weeks. The government felt compelled to act and to act quickly. Yeah. No, I agree. They had to respond. They had to to, to play their part as as a global uh, uh, citizens as well. They had to, to, to make a response. Uh, but it's also important to understand the fact that there are, there are people in their back, backyards as well that have been waiting in, 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 in limbo and they must not channel everything to one uh, part of the people and, and leave the others. That's, that is the message. Let everybody be treated equally. Because when everyone, when, when they are here, they are, they, are, they are already safe. We feel safe once we get here. Everyone feels safe once we get here. But we want services to be provided equally, not to, to be tiered that this one is, less, is, is more important than the other. That's why we see hypocrisy in it. We see hypocrisy. But what is good for the other must be good, must be good for the other as well. So we have a, a, a problem with, uh, with that inequality that we have seen, you know. So we want a big change, really. All right. We're going to leave it uh, there. But Lucky Kambuli, thank you uh, for taking the time to speak with us here this evening. Thank you. Back to you in studio. Well, here in studio to react to this and more, I'm joined by People Before Profit TD Breed Smith, Fianna Fáil TD Barry Cowan and CEO of the Irish Refugee Council, Nick Henderson. Um, we heard, Nick, what Lucky had to say there, you know, pointing to glaring inequality in the refugee system as it is now, um, appreciating what the government is doing, but clearly feeling the hypocrisy. Would you agree with him? Yeah, I'd agree with a lot of what Lucky was saying. I think there is uh, differing approaches to people seeking asylum in Ireland compared to Ukrainian refugees. Um, that being said, uh, I think, as Lucky suggested, we do recognise, I think we all recognise that this is an exceptional conflict uh, on the border of Europe and it's resulted in the biggest uh, movement of people since the Second World War. But what Lucky was trying got across well was the idea that if we can help one group of people and within less than four weeks pivot a huge number of services across to support people, if we can do that, why can't we do it for other people seeking protection? Uh, there are currently around 2,000 people who aren't even yet in direct provision. They're in emergency accommodation and hotels themselves. And in our experience, it's those people who are really struggling to get basic services such as schooling. Isn't that true, Barry Cowan? You know, there's been immediate support for Ukrainian refugees while people fleeing the Middle East, African countries have had to wait for years, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Ethiopia, the list goes on. And we haven't been there for them to the same extent. Yeah, look, the, the Irish people want the Irish government to succeed. They want to work with them. They want to work on behalf of the Ukrainian people to ensure that every opportunity is given to them to find refuge here. Mm. In finding refuge, that the, 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 what's available from the state is made available to those people in equal measure. 
And yes, of course, if there are learnings to be made in relation to other nationalities and the difficulties they've had within the direct provision system, of course they have to be addressed. Of course they should be addressed. There is commitments within the programme for government to do so. But as Nick has said, the obligation on us now is a growing one uh, daily and weekly. And there is uh, a coherent effort on the part of the government so far as they can and so to, to, to meet the people once they arrive to share all relevant departments at the airport to help and assist to look at the whole issue of accommodation, whether it's in hotels and B&Bs or guest houses, whether it's in relation to the offers that's been made by people themselves, whether it's state properties, which religious properties, whether it's facilities, everything has to be coordinated in a way in which uh, those people have to be helped as best as is humanly possible. It's, it's, the big, as that. it's a big question though, what you're talking about is a huge thing logistically and everything else and, and short term there may be hotel beds available, there may be, you know, we've heard about you know, various centres being opened up for emergency beds in this situation, but for a more long term, because we don't know how long this is going to go on for, uh, how's the government fixed in that regard? We I mean, don't. 2,000 people, as Nick says, in yeah. direct provision who actually are cleared to go. And they've been through the system and they can't leave because there's no well, to up, go. up to nine, over nine, nearly 10,000 people have arrived in the country in the last number of weeks as a result of this conflict. And it is growing and there's some arriving every day of the week. There's a huge, as I said, there's a huge willingness, effort and want on the part of the Irish people. Up to 20,000 people have committed to make their homes available for those who are seeking refuge and to give them that refuge. And they want... Uh, our government to succeed. They know it's not easy. They know it's a huge challenge for everybody concerned, but it's imperative that government work together and the various departments come together, whether it's justice in vetting, whether it's education in providing uh, school facilities, whether it's housing and looking at the ways in which uh, you know, housing can be provided much more quickly. And we know the problem associated with that with modular homes. Can, can new legislation be brought forward in the context of an emergency to ensure the temporary accommodation in the first instance while, while more permanent accommodation provided thereafter. Uh, Breed Smith, the idea, and I know that portal has been, you know, uh, as um, Barry's alluded to there, people have logged in, they, they want to help, they want to open up their homes. Um, do you think it's government handing over responsibility there on, on a matter that they, they're just not capable of dealing with fully ourselves, that we need to, you know, open, open up people's homes, but... Passing no, on. No, I issue. don't actually see it like that. I, I think it's it's extraordinary how decent Irish people are and they respond to a humanitarian crisis in this way. And I'm reminded that they did it before. And seven years ago in the Syrian crisis in 2015, this state made a commitment to take in 4,000 Syrians, which was fallen way short of the offers that we had at the time. You might remember people throwing open their homes to take in Syrian families and it, it, the 4,000 that the government committed to fell way short of it. But we haven't even taken them in. We've taken in around 3,000 in seven years. So when Lucky Kambuli talks about, we feel there's a bit of hypocrisy here, I feel that too. And I think lots of people see it. At the moment, even just in terms of globally and your, uh, uh, the response in Europe, at the moment there are still thousands of Syrian and Afghan refugees on the Belarus-Polish border in the freezing cold with dogs and troops and riot gear surrounding them on a daily basis. We don't seem to think in terms of the real suffering of human beings on an ongoing basis when we are in government, but ordinary people do, and they're very generous with their homes, with their, with their donations, with their willingness to uh, contribute. And the only other thing I would say about it is, and I'm delighted at the response of the Irish people, but I do think the government have fallen way short of their response to the Syrian crisis, to the Afghan crisis, and that stinks of hypocrisy. Barry, isn't that true? 
Not necessarily. I, I, you know, I, I accept that the direct provision system hasn't served those people well. It hasn't served us well from an international perspective in the way in which we didn't live up to the commitments that were made. But I think there is a realisation on the part of the nation as a whole that this humanitarian crisis has focused people's minds and attention and is begging of government to, be, to respond in the way in which uh, they themselves would like to see uh, results emanating from the effort that's been made. And, you know, if, if improvements have to be made, of course we accept our responsibility in that regard. And of course there shouldn't be people left in queues on the borders the of, of Poland. political will so hasn't been there up until now? I, I accept that there are questions remain unanswered in relation to the commitment that was made not being realised. Of course I do. Mm. Of course I do. But that's not to say that there hasn't been challenges in relation to the countries over the last number of years. Of course there, there has. But as we st sit here this evening, as we know the wanton destruction and damage and utter barbaric nature of this war and its impact on the people involved, we as a European nation, together with our European partners, have to make commitments that we can stand over, have to provide the sort of facilities that we would expect ourselves and people before us and our own generations, many years before, had got from other countries and it's we want the, to reciprocate. It's, it's not only this war that's barbaric and inhuman and causing destruction and death. All wars I don't do, do that. I don't, All I accept wars that. do that. I accept that. I Whether accept you're that. a Syrian or an Afghani, um, a Ukrainian, all wars are painful I'm not, for people. I'm, I'm not up for arguing about the, the barbarity of one war against another. I accept, of course, that all wars should never occur. All wars do nothing, only destruct uh, human life and everything surrounding it. So okay. there's an onus of responsibility on us to demand of our government to react in the way in which we would expect and our people expect them to do so. And I'm convinced and I'm happy that the government are playing their role, are meeting on a regular basis, are informing the public about what's been done and what can be done and what will be done. OK, because we still have a situation and, um, you know, Lucky alluded to it um, perhaps there and just talking about people who are, say, children in hotels not attending school. They're yeah. for months on end, Nick, trying to, before they get that, you know, the, the, the temporary residence certificate that will allow them receive supplementary um, welfare and allow them to get their kids into school and all those things that we're told will now be fast-tracked. Um, do you think that all of this will happen as planned? Yeah, I think for Ukrainian refugees, I think that it, 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 it possibly can. Uh, it's no doubt this is a challenge. Uh, 10,000 people have arrived in four weeks. Uh, and that's the same number of people who've applied for international protection since the beginning of 2019. Those numbers speak for themselves. Uh, our services uh, are under huge demand, uh, as an example, and, uh, and so are our partner organisations. Um, it's going to be challenging, um, but already, and I think we've, we've alluded to it on this panel, the Irish public uh, are completely committed mm. to supporting people in this situation. The challenge for us all is, and I think we're all in agreement with this, as Lucky said, can we do for Ukrainian refugees, um, at, can we do for other people as we've done for Ukrainian refugees? Uh, we heard um, the Thornish are saying, don't expect financial re reward for taking in Ukrainian refugees. Um, what, what do you make of that? Because we know in the UK they're offering families, say, €350, Euro, uh, 350 pounds sterling a week yeah. um, to t take in a month, I beg your pardon, to take in people that are affected by war. Um, do you think that sort of thing is a good idea or should we be just relying on, on, on altruism there? From, I from think people? we should be relying on altruism. Um, I think that 
supporting and accommodating a, a family who have come from Ukraine or an individual who's come from Ukraine is a very serious responsibility. Uh, on the spectrum of how people can get involved and support this issue, this is probably at the, the end of the spectrum. It's, very, it's a very significant thing to do. It's yeah. hugely impactful, hugely impactful, no doubt about it. But I think we should start from the position of, is somebody in a right position to do it? Have they received the training? Uh, it, what about all of that, the vetting, the training, ensuring that when people are fleeing, you know, th th this crisis and, uh, and this situation, that they're really going to the right place and they're going to secure and safe homes? Well, as an example, we had a portal that was open for around two weeks where people could pledge accommodation. Then we've, we've uh, closed ours and referred across to the Red Cross. But uh, of our 1,500 offers, only about 200 are owned or accommodation. And that's what we're looking for. And I think that's the Red Cross's approach at the moment. Uh, so only 200 actually owned or accommodation. So we're working through those. And then we will go to, uh, say, a, a bed, spare bedroom or, or a granny flat or, or, or something of that nature. But I think it's important. One thing that we should clarify, and I think it's, it's under discussion now, is that the guard of vetting legislation, we talk a lot about mm. vetting, uh, refugees aren't actually named as a, a vulnerable category of persons in the vetting legislation. So I think we should uh, maybe consider some sort of a change there or a common set of rules that are maybe not on a statutory, statutory footing, but a common set of rules or a memorandum of understanding that the public can read and consider whether or not this is an appropriate thing for them to do. Okay, thank you for that. Appreciate it. My thanks to Nick Henderson. Breed Smith and Barry Cowan will be staying with me. Coming up after the break, higher prices in the supermarket as Irish farmers warn of a food supply crisis. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, the war in Ukraine has brought into sharp focus our reliance on the import and export of food, with many citing this as an opportunity for Ireland to become more self-sufficient when it comes to our own food supply chains. Breed Smith and Barry Cowan are still with me. We're also joined by journalist John Gibbons and consumer editor of the Irish Farmers Journal, Kira Leahy. But first, I'd like to go to Skype to speak to economist Jim Power. Jim, uh, you were behind this report that was uh, that the Farmers Association came out with today. Um, they are concerned, of course, about food security. Uh, how much do you think it's at risk right now? Um, I think, Claire, we, we've seen very clearly over the last month in sharp focus um, the just how fragile the whole global food supply chain is. Um, I don't think there was a full realisation of just how important countries like Ukraine and Russia are for wheat production and sunflowers and so on. And um, I, I think what has happened in the last month has certainly brought home to people that self-sufficiency in food if at all possible, is very important. And there is a debate going on in agricultural circles, particularly in the UK, that the UK faces an existential crisis um, over the ability to feed the nation because the UK basically produces 50% of the food that it consumes. It has to import the, the rest. And of course, we now see just how vulnerable a country becomes if it is dep that dependent on imports in the event of something going wrong. And I guess the conversation we'll be having tonight 
would be very, very different than the conversation we might have been having having three months ago even, you know. But the Ukraine war has certainly brought this into sharp focus. And uh, I, I think from the perspective of a country like Ireland that, you know, is pretty good at producing food um, in terms of climate and so on. Mm. And um, I think it's now time to really focus in on that again and make sure it continues to be a high value added contribution to the Irish economy. But more importantly, that it actually contributes to food security um, in the face of these sorts of global supply chain threats that we're seeing at the moment. And of course, COVID um, obviously exacerbated those supply chain difficulties, but the Ukraine war um, has made the situation even more vulnerable. Okay, uh, let's go to the panel on all of this. Kira, food inflation, I mean, in terms of how this is all um, playing out in the supermarket, uh, we haven't to date seen the same price rises in food as we have in other consumer areas. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at the price of our, you know, energy prices are up by 27%. We're not seeing that in our supermarket shopping trolley yet. But there has been increases in food prices over the past 12 months. Food inflation is up by 2.9% and that's the biggest increase in since the recession. And let's dig deeper into the shopping trolley. What we're actually seeing is that the foods that we're importing are the, are the foods that are going up in price. So for example, um, pasta has gone up by 10% in the last year. Tin tomatoes have gone up by 9%. And say your white slice pan has gone up by 7%. What hasn't gone up though is is the food that we are producing ourselves in this country, like the likes of our eggs, our milk, our butter, um, which is very surprising, Claire. In fact, potatoes are, have decreased in value. And it's very surprising when you consider the massive input increases that farmers have seen in the last 12 months. So why is that? Is that down to below cost selling, John? Why, why do you think we're, we're seeing this? That's the farmers say they're worried about is they want a ban on below cost selling. Do you agree with them on that? Yes, I do. I think uh, we really need, and maybe this is a great moment to, to reconsider the role that food plays in a, in, in a stable society. I think we've taken food for granted for, for years, in fact, for decades. Uh, and there was a time, maybe if you go back 50 years, when food would have constituted between 30 and 40% of the after-tax uh, household expenditure in Ireland. Now, that is now somewhere hovering between 8 and 10%. So I would argue it's actually gone the other way. We've ended up with a food system where food is actually in, in many regards too cheap. That includes meaning, for example, meaning that the primary producers are not getting recompensed for their work and anything that is sold below cost, ultimately that doesn't, that, that harms the producer. And this is one of the big problems. And I know everybody likes things to be cheap, but ultimately, if things are too cheap for too long, you hollow out the sector that is producing it. And you also drive, as we have in Ireland, commodity agriculture, where we move away from providing for human needs and instead follow an industrialised commodity model. See, people would argue that food, I mean, that, that things are not cheap at all in any regard at the moment, Breed. Uh, what, what do you think of, of what John is saying and, and indeed what farmers are saying? Basically, we're not paying enough for the produce. We're not actually paying enough for the foods that we're consuming. Well, funny enough, as somebody who comes from the city, I only got to know farmers since I became a TD because they're always outside the doll and quite rightly protesting usually about the uh, prices they're getting for meat um, and how they're being ripped off by the uh, industrialised nature of food production, particularly beef and dairy in this country. 
and the sort of uh, statistics that they tell me about their lives and about the production of food have, are really startling. Like the amount of food that we import, basic food like onions, potatoes, carrots, the 9 billion a year we import in food. And we have over 7 million uh, in our herd of cattle, which is like twice the population or at least one and a half times the population. And it's, it, it, it's not sustainable. Most of the land has been used for cattle, not for growing things. And now we're faced with a crisis in the Ukraine. It's like, oh my God, we take food for granted. But we've been doing that, particularly in Ireland, for decades. And in the face of climate change in particular, which isn't a one-off event, it's a reoccurring event of droughts, of fires, of uh, extreme heat, of, uh, of floods, that has a big impact on food production. Ireland is well situated to change that and now is a moment when we should. But we do need to move away from this industrialised model okay. of producing uh, dairy in particular. You know, just on the issue though of food poverty, is there a balance that needs to be found between avoiding people in food poverty versus paying more for your chicken, you know, your 3 99 chicken in the supermarket? Well, I, I don't think that the question of food poverty is just about farmers. It's also about the type of diet people have. And we have problems with our level of health and obesity levels and stuff because the, the sort of diet that a yeah. lot of people have. And we do need to spend more money on having a better diet. But I agree with, with uh, what, what John is saying, that we need to put a focus on and value food better than we do. But that it's not even just about, you know, whether we eat better or not. We are, we could actually be facing a, a crisis in grain production. And if we do, and it's been hinted by the department that we get farmers to grow more grain here, then that should be for things like muesli and porridge and bread production, not for feeding cattle. Yeah. for export. All right. Uh, Barry, on that, um, do you think that there's been a political move away from self-sufficiency? You wrote an opinion piece at the weekend saying, in your own words, that we need to reshape Fianna Fáil and government policies to tap into our resources, make Ireland self-contained and self-sufficient. I was so talking we, about energy specifically there. Yeah, OK. But what, what about broadening it out to, 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 generally speaking, how we are dealing with this crisis and looking at our self-sufficiency on the land? Well, the immediacy of the situation we have at present is that the, 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 the impact of war, the impact of sanctions is very grave for various sectors. Those that depend on households and are included on energy and fuel and fertilisers and wheat. We've seen efforts to address the issues in relation to energy. We've seen efforts to address the issues in relation to fuel uh, prices. But we have yet to see a package that seeks to address the difficulties associated with producing food for this coming season, and that is in the context of the farm, uh, the farming community and, the, and their ability to produce food is greatly impacted by the costs associated with fertilisers, by what the costs the associated with grain. We have a very narrow food policy in this country, and it's not serving. Well, we have a common agricultural policy, you know, um, is it which, which is which is agreed with our European partners in relation to the amount we produce, how we produce it, and the sort of prices that can emanate from that system. Now, I only seen today where Jackie Cahill, as, as chair of an agricultural committee, was meeting with his counterparts throughout Europe and France today. And they, for example, are of the opinion that this, the common agricultural policy, in the context of the impact that the war and sanctions are having, needs to be revisited in the short term to see if there's any way in which that can be improved to, 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 to help and assist in the response that's required 
by the farming community, by farming organisations, and to give confidence back okay. to the farming organisations to provide the sort of food and the sort of security we need from that sector to, 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 to deal with this crisis. Just in understanding it, John, the whole food security issue, to bring it back down, down to basics, and, and, you know, the Agriculture Minister was talking about this, you know, the, the spin on, on farmers producing um, their own grain and moving towards that. Is that the solution here? Is that the sort of thing that, that, that we're talking about, that we need to do more? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is to make sure that we don't allow um, agri-industrial interests at a European level to roll back on the aspirations of the EU's farm-to-fork policy. This is a policy that is pushing the European Union towards a 25% organic agriculture mix by 2030. This is not airy-fairy. Several European countries have already achieved 20% organic. Ireland is, is the bottom of the class here. We have 2% organic. And also, in terms of food security, organic food systems give you security because they're not completely dependent on imported inputs, number one. Number two, horticulture gives you more food per hectare than any other production system. Yet less than 1% of Ireland's farmland is horticulturally produced. They're the systems, Claire, that we need to produce. And we need to get the political backing. The problem at the moment is that the political backing for the farm lobby has been pushing down one alley. That alley is dairy intensification. And unfortunately, that is now proving to be a blind alley. Okay, uh, Jim, to, to come to you on all of that, um, you know, that the push obviously being from the horticulture sector that really, you know, they're struggling to survive here and talk as well of a food regulator uh, being needed, a food ombudsman. Do you think that would help solve the problem? Well, yeah, I mean, this report was specifically looking at the horticulture sector and it, it wasn't making any um, claims about other sectors of agriculture. Horticulture is the fourth largest output sector in value terms uh, behind dairy, beef and pigs. Um, the economics of horticulture production are pretty awful at the moment. For example, um, you know, um, energy costs are up 20, over 22%, sorry, Electricity costs are up over 22% in the last year. Fertilizer up 127. Motor fuels up 36.8%. And yet, if you look at the price of the consumer price of fresh vegetables, they've fallen by 0.1% in the last year. Potatoes are down by 4.2%. Fruit is up by just 1.4%. Um, and indeed, in the last 10 years, the average price of food at the retail level has fallen by eight and a half percent. So if you're in a production market where your input costs are rising strongly, where retail prices are flat or have been falling for most of the past 10 years, well, the economics of that just do not stack up. And unless you address it in a meaningful way, you are going to lose this valuable horticultural production. And um, I, I just think that would be something we cannot stand back and accept. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I guess, ideologically be in favour of extreme government intervention um, in normal times. But in horticulture particularly, there is market failure at the moment. The market is not functioning. Mm. The producers okay. are in serious trouble. So I think it is time for government to step in with strong legislation to prevent retailers from giving away um, horticulture products and using them as loss leaders in their supermarkets. And um, to, oh. I opposed at the time the abolition of the uh, ban on below cost selling. Um, I think it should be reintroduced. Otherwise, okay. we're going to lose thousands of food producers here. Bar Barry Cowan, just want to get you on that. A ban on below cost selling should be brought in 
Um, would you support that? Does it need to well, happen? Well, just three things Jim mentions. Input costs, below-cost selling, and a food ombudsman. I think the, the, all three can be addressed by government in, in their efforts to address this issue in relation Will to Will they? Consumers. I mean, the ban on low-cost selling, well, that's well, been, the, the, that's there's been a commitment the program, There's a commitment in the programme for government in relation to a food ombudsman. That, that will be brought and forward. What that is being brought forward. But I mean, that will be for the doll to decide and for the government to bring forward proposals for it to, to, to agree something on thereafter. Like, something like, you know, a ban on below cost selling? Is that but the that, that, that could be well, under that could well be under his, under his remit. Of course it could, and as, as it should be. And, and that was the commitment that was made initially in relation to the beef situation, and it will have responsibilities in that regard too. And also, as I said to you, in relation to input costs. There has to be a whole of Europe response to the, to the need that is within that industry to ensure uh, that it is addressed in a way in which can deal with the crisis that we have presently, which is coming down the track in relation to the, the failure to provide the sort of food that is necessary to meet the demands. Briefly on that, would you agree? Do you think an ombudsman will make a difference here? Well, no, I don't. And I think what, what John Gibbons said there is important. The political will to change how we produce food and the, the way the market works has to be there. And it's not there, certainly not with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. For the last 15 to 20 years, they have pushed a model to increase the dairy herd and to push up the export. I think it's like some like 5 million. Um, the government claims that we feed over 5 uh, billion people globally. But we, we may feed them globally, but we're completely unsustainable here in Ireland, both in terms of our emissions. We've got to, we've got to look at our emission targets, but also in terms of how we uh, uh, feed our own society and pay our farmers. Answering that, I'd say, Breeze, there is advancements being made in relation in relation to feedstuff for cattle, for example. There is advancements Mayor, being made in relation to, we have too many to the genetics. Cattle. We have too many cattle. No, no. We won't admit we, it. We, 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 have, we have cattle that is meeting a demand, a worldwide the demand. The we, we are producing cattle, we are producing products that are world leaders that continue to be so in order to ensure that this economy is in a sound footing. And agriculture can and will and should play a leading role. And it can meet it, the it, demands it, it, that's been placed it, upon it from the perspective of, 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 of emissions. Of course it can. And the there, policies, there is, there's the technologies the, and there's commitments on the part of experts right. within, the, within government and Briefly, beyond to John, do so. Is it realistic to, to continue in, in this vein uh, and the, the policy as it is? Well, I'd like to agree with Barry that uh, the current model can meet its emissions targets. However, the current model has delivered a 12% increase in agricultural emissions in the last decade. And no sign of that abating. In fact, Chagas are targeting further increases in the dairy herd all the way to 2027. Every extra litre of milk is more methane. You can, you can tinker around with efficiency at the edges. But the reality is, as you, you increase that scientific output... Scientific um, expertise that can be brought to bear they can provide the likes of feedstuffs, they can re reduce emission per, per, per head of cattle. Well, Barry, Do you not look at the genetics you, that, can, yeah. that can make an impact into the dairy herd and produce more of a beef herd from within that? Barry, as, a result as, of as that soon as any of these begin to actually bend the emission curves exactly. downwards, then I would okay. agree with you. Yeah. However, none of them have done anything of they the sort. We've, we've, we've only, brought, we've only brought in the we'll targets in recent times, we've only brought in the budgets in recent times. We'll be back after the break. My thanks to Jim Power, our panel are staying with us. After the break, Minister Eamon Ryan says we should stand up to Putin by not buying Russian oil. Easier said than done. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back. As the world begins to turn its back on Russian fossil fuels, is it possible to use this time of crisis to fast-track Ireland's own renewable energy aspirations? My panel of Breed Smith, Barry Cowan, John Gibbons and Kira Leahy are still with me. And Kira, to come to you first on this, I mean, really where people are really feeling it at the moment is, is in the pocket. Um, even prior to any decision on sanctioning energy from Russia, if that decision comes, we are playing a really high price for fossil fuels here. Poor uh, gosh, announcement yeah. last week. Um, being the one that really shocked a lot of people, even though those in government said they knew it was coming. Absolutely. I mean, look, if you were to look last year alone, there was 35 price hikes. I mean, that is absolutely unheard of. And basically what consumers were looking at was increases between 300 and 1,300 euros. So yeah, last week then, Borgosh came out, the first out of the traps in terms of this year, in terms of price hikes. And they were saying that basically you're looking at about 350 euros more this year in terms of your electricity and your gas bills. I mean, this is on top of increases of 540 euros since August 2020. So consumers are really, really, really feeling it in their pockets. And Claire, you know, there I know we say it time and time again, but there is no time like now to shop around. I mean, just for example, today I went on to one of the um cost comparison websites. If you are with Flowgas at the moment, which is one of the most expensive um, providers, and you were to switch over to um, to Electric Ireland, I just took the example of a, a consumer living in rural Ireland that was using the national um, average of electricity and gas, they could look at savings of 1,700 euros. I mean, just by switching. So, like, you, uh, we really, like, there is a kind of responsibility on... savings uh, right now if they yeah. were to switch yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. But aren't we likely to see, I suppose, these price increases that were announced by the likes of board, gosh, you know, really across the board. Well, that's exactly. But even if you're with one of the cheapest providers, you're, you still switch. There's no loyalty to stay with any of the providers, you know, and you, when you switch, you're getting that introduction deal. So it really is worth shopping around. All of this, of course, John Gimmons, against the, the, the backdrop of a climate crisis. Um, I want to ask you about those heat waves that are being reported at both poles. Um, unprecedented to see temperature rises at opposite sides of the earth at the same time. That's right. Um, we, we should have a situation where you might expect them in one and not the other. But as you said, we're seeing them simultaneously. Scientists over the last number of days have reported uh, temperature spikes uh, across uh, eastern Antarctica of between 40 and 50 degrees. The, there is no precedent for this. In, in the Arctic region, we've seen temperature spikes of up to 30 degrees. So what, what this is telling us, loud and clear, now, allowing, by the way, for lots of climate variability, the, the Antarctic, for example, is a very volatile uh, environment. 
huge weather, weather systems there. However, what we're seeing here loud and clear is a global climate emergency. Both our polar regions are in what I would call shock. They're basically undergoing rapid changes. Now, some of these, for example, uh, on the Western Antarctic, we have a, a glacier called the Thwaites Glacier. It's about the size of Florida, and essentially it's held in place by a shelf of sea ice. That shelf of sea ice is in the process of breaking up. When that shelf breaks up, and scientists currently estimate it's got three to five years before it does, the Thwaites Glacier begins to work its way into the sea. That is going to rise global sea levels, just that glacier, by 60 centimetres. That's two feet in old money. Uh, so that is a, an emergency. That, by the way, is one glacier on one part of Western Antarctica, which is only a tiny part of the system. So what it's saying, Claire, loud and clear, in case anybody missed the memo, we're in a global climate emergency and every discussion that we have, whether it's about food, whether it's about energy, whatever you'd like to, we have to predicate it through the filter of the global climate emergency. If we lose this, we lose everything. Uh, Barry, is the urgency there? Like we heard what John has to say, those reports really quite frightening. Um, and then the Secretary General of the UN tonight even saying we're sleepwalking to a climate catastrophe. And yet we had Eamon Ryan out today, you know, inviting applications from April for offshore wind energy. But we're only doing it now. Yeah, and we're, we're only doing five gigawatts, as announced today, up to 2030. And, you, you know, as I said earlier, John, you either go big or go broke or go home. And I think from our perspective, and the point you made about what I wrote yesterday, here's the opportunity we have on our shores. A, an industry that has the capacity to be worth the, and the size of the Irish economy, 300 billion euro. There's 15 gigawatts in the south and east coast available for exploration. There's 30 on the west coast, with a possible 70 more in, if, if wave energy uh, moves in the direction we would hope it will. And that has the capacity, together with the potential in Southern Europe in relation to solar, the Mediterranean countries and the solar capacity that they have to create a pan-European grid whereby we can be at the front of a pipe rather than the end of one. And we can, we, can, we can develop and provide okay. regional development by virtue of, 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 of energy in areas you, where it's needed. Are you saying, Barry, that we're not being ambitious enough? Like I am. And, 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 and as, but listen, as, a, as, as, an author, as an author of the programme for government in, in recent years, the, the commitment in, in that programme for government in relation to offshore development was five gigawatts. Especially now in the context of the crisis that we find ourselves in all across Europe and the over-dependency on, on Russian gas and so forth. There is an onus of responsibility for Europe as a whole to respond and we can be at the forefront of that. So you're saying... I'm saying we can provide... The green agenda is, within government right I'm now saying is not from ambitious an, enough. I'm saying from an energy perspective, we have at our disposal a 300 billion euro industry that can be developed, that can be provided, that can be to the forefront of so our economic development. That? Who's stopping that? Well, I'm saying, and I've said it to the Taoiseach in recent weeks, that he should lead the charge at the European summit, which he did, and which he will respond to us next week when he's available to do so, in relation to the commitment that he is seeking and wants to get from our partners in Europe, that Ireland can lead the charge in relation to the provision of a pan-European supergrid, right. that leave us with no dependency on the likes of Russian gas into the future. It's as simple as that. A Fianna Fáil in, in green clothing. What do you think of what Barry Cowan has to say? Of the well, plans? I'm not going to join Fianna Fáil, right? If that's what you're asking me. But uh, <laughs> I don't think I don't think to be having me. <laughs> uh, exactly. 
Um, I think, look, I, I think Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael should put their hands up. They have sat on legacy licences for offshore wind for over 20 years. They haven't moved on them. Yeah. And what we really need, and we put this into the Climate Action Plan, we need the government to devise a way that we nationalise offshore energy, create a company like we had the ESB in the 1930s and 40s when we electrified the country with a publicly owned, publicly run and uh, company. And owning and running that company would mean that our natural resources are exploited for our benefit. Okay, so when we not, have not for profit. calling for these applications to open private He's companies. He's talking about interested. private developers buying up chunks of the ocean so that they can develop wind energy yeah. and they can make vast You're profits out of it. We should do it I'm ourselves. saying we should do it, the state should do it. You might be answered. You know, Bridge, you know, there might be a gap for you if you're moving in the same direction myself in this issue. But you could form your own. If, 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 like, I mean, owning ESB is not providing cheap electricity in the homes across no, Ireland today. Is it? In, in is, 2001. it? is it? You deregulated in 2001. How much is it worth? When it was the cheapest electricity to the consumers How much is it worth? across Europe. How much is ESB worth? I don't know, but I'm telling you, Barry. It could, it could you, be worth you, enough you, to, you to. It could be worth enough to ensure that we can live up to the expectation and the ambition contained in providing a European super grid indeed. and creating... Because you can't, for example, have a situation whereby in this country we can attract the best and the brightest in relation to technology. You can't have Google, TikTok, uh, Microsoft, all these companies saying, you're, you're welcome to Ireland, we, we want you here, we want you to grow here, but we don't want to store your data here. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's the greatest sorry, misnomer sorry, no, hang in this on country. A second, hang but you on need a to provide the energy to... to, to Hang to on ensure a that those data centres have if, a place if this in this is what, If this is what's behind your logic, then uh, shame on you. It's because not. what we're doing in terms of the provision of electricity to data centres is outrageous. Other countries, such as Singapore, uh, Spain, etc., have reduced the amount that they can take you from generate, the national grid. You generate the power. You generate go, the energy that can do be done offshore. To go more than and five you ensure those regions that are left grid. behind. Okay. And Barry won't let me finish my point. We have enough data centres planned with planning permission in this country for it to absorb. 30% of the national grid within 10 years. That so is we need, shameful. Briefly, so we need to, to, so we need just, to just increase to the provision of energy uh, to be able to in, house them. In terms of, if we don't, I heard Mary Robinson, if we don't spend our children's money now, our children will have no future. I take it you'd wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah, I think she's she's exactly on the money and, and uh, she, she put it very well on the Late Late Show, in fact, the other night, making that point. On the data centre thing, if we want to provide data centres, what we do is get that infrastructure that right. Barry described in place first, data centre okay. second, not the other way around. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That's it. Thanks to all my guests. Good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.